Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks for joining me again. As you know, I usually have a conversation with a guest author and or thinker, but today I think I'm just going to do some solo commentary about a topic that I've been eager to address for a long while, and that is the crisis of masculinity. And I'm going to talk about it in the context of one influential figure who has been prominent in internet news and commentary lately, and that is Andrew Tate. Now, Tate seems to inspire either love or hate on both sides of the political aisle, and everybody seems to have an opinion about him. But today, you're going to get the right take on Andrew Tate. But this isn't just about my reaction to him, but about the larger context, the cultural context, and why I think he figures significantly within that context. So let's get to it. Conservative thinkers lately have become increasingly preoccupied with the urgent cultural issue of this crisis of masculinity. You have recent book titles like Manhood by Senator Josh Hawley, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. I myself have written and spoken about this crisis for many years and argued that reclaiming the masculine values, which our culture has now demonized as toxic, is really essential to pulling Western civilization out of its tailspin and restoring its greatness. But which masculine values? Because there are competing visions of masculinity today, and whichever one prevails, I would argue, will determine the future of the West. Okay, so what does it mean exactly to have a crisis of masculinity? Well, the, the left's decades-long assault on the nuclear family has succeeded in diminishing the value of and respect for the traditional roles of men in the West. For the first time in history... There's no clear consensus of what it even means to be a man, what a man's familial and social responsibilities are, or how a man finds purpose. And without purpose, a man ceases to matter. And when men cease to matter, civilization begins to disintegrate. Young males now are often adrift and directionless, while the culture vilifies them that their very nature is toxic, that they perpetuate something called rape culture, that they are misogynistic oppressors of women, all of this even as women now enjoy unprecedented access to and success in every field from business to science. Young men are told that the future is female, so there's a deep undercurrent of resentment and anger now that's boiling among many disaffected young men who often either are searching for meaning in all the wrong places or they've given up and retreated entirely into this virtual wasteland of online porn and gaming addictions. That crisis alone is a recipe for civilizational collapse. In response, the Internet now is teeming with these what I would call masculinity gurus, psychologists, pundits, uh, ex-military life coaches, and others, including, say, Jordan Peterson, for example, the best-selling author of 12 Rules for Life, who has inspired a whole army of lost young men to get their lives together. Uh, Republican Senator Josh Hawley is another one whose new book, Manhood, which I mentioned a moment ago, urges American men to embrace their God-given calling both to lead and to serve. Most of these gurus, however, seem to be focused on helping young men become good at being men, at reacquiring the roles and skills men have traditionally taken for granted, but which the modern world has stripped 
from too many of them. Now, granted, this is a crucial aspect of reclaiming their masculinity, but unlike Peterson and Hawley, for example, few of these guides, these gurus, seem to be oriented toward helping young men become good men. In other words, their focus tends to be on male mastery, not moral masculinity. Indeed, some of these gurus in the dark recesses of what they call the manosphere, which is this online realm where many alienated young men hang out seeking life and relationship advice, many of these uh, gurus in the manosphere are really pernicious influences that are pushing strategies for rejecting the traditional path of marriage and children and instead leading solitary, self-centered, pointless lives devoted to financial success and the sexual conquest of women. Among all these influential role models, it's become impossible to talk about the state of masculinity in the Western world without addressing the impact of controversial social media superstar Andrew Tate. Now, many conservatives were first introduced to Tate by media maverick Tucker Carlson, who conducted a two-and-a-half-hour interview with him recently. But I can assure you that virtually everybody in Generations X and Z was already very familiar with Tate. As a former kickboxing champion and shrewd self-mythologizer, Tate, who is 37, is seemingly ubiquitous across the Internet. His name is one of the most searched on Google. His TikTok videos have been viewed billions of times, shared through this massive network of followers. His influence among many millions of alienated young men and boys is arguably, I would say, on a scale equal to that of Jordan Peterson. Tate's notoriety stems basically from two things. One, his flaunting of an extravagant lifestyle of expensive cigars and suits and watches and a fleet of flashy supercars. And two, a reputation for outrageously misogynistic statements and behavior. The latter have gotten him kicked off a reality TV show and banned from virtually every social media platform. But as Tate sees it, any publicity is good publicity. Now, Tate himself proudly admits that he grew wealthy from his lucrative pornographic webcam business and related pyramid schemes which he ran out of Romania, a country that he said he moved to because the government there is more corrupt and because sexual assault allegations are taken less seriously. He and his equally unscrupulous brother Tristan made millions by romancing dozens of young women and then manipulating them emotionally to participate in a business model that he himself has readily admitted was a total scam, not only of the female employees that he admits he cheated, but the lonely suckers that his webcam girls sponged sometimes for their life savings. Tate went on to launch something called Hustlers University, a $50 a month online program designed to teach young men essentially how to imitate his own success exploiting women. He even offered a PhD program Pimpin' Hose Degree, which is just what it sounds like. Now, some on the political right, nevertheless, admire the glib, charismatic Tate for a few reasons. He's made valid conservative observations condemning the decadence of the modern West. He repudiates feminism and promotes a strong, unapologetic vision of masculinity. And he calls for men to embrace more traditional relationship roles like protector and provider. In their lengthy interview, Tucker Carlson treated Tate with almost a giddy admiration, and he seemed to take everything Tate said at face value, which is a serious mistake where Tate is concerned. 
Shortly after that, another prominent conservative commentator, the Daily Wire's Candace Owens, released her own three-hour videotaped interview with Tate from his home in Romania, where he was only just recently released from house arrest, while the Romanian authorities work on building a case to indict him for human trafficking, along with his brother and uh, two female alleged accomplices. Candace Owens challenged Tate marginally more in her interview than Tucker did in his, but this conservative impulse to latch onto the celebrity Tate as a political ally must stop because he is a terrible role model. His legion of male fans, who are justifiably fed up with a feminized culture that batters them for their toxic nature, sees Tate as someone who has it all. He's this former champion athlete who advocates for men to improve themselves through self-discipline and fitness training. He's living large, surrounded by the, the kind of expensive toys that appeal to young men. And he lives on his own terms and doesn't cower before feminist outrage or cancel culture. He represents to these young men, his fans, a peak virility which flies in the face of a culture that celebrates gender-bending celebrities like singer-actor Harry Styles, who actually poses and dresses on the cover of Vogue magazine. But this showy facade of Tate's lifestyle conceals a spiritual and moral abyss. Even a quick investigation into Andrew Tate turns up abundant, damning video evidence of his own statements exposing him as a master manipulator, or in his own words, an ice-cold hustler, a ruthless exploiter of women and the young men he claims to be inspiring and helping, and a morally repugnant egotist. As if this weren't concerning enough in terms of the kind of masculinity he promotes, an interesting twist in the Tate saga is his recent conversion from Eastern Orthodox Christianity to Islam. He has said, quote, Islam is the last true religion on the planet. Christianity has no power left, unquote. He said this because he argues that Christians do not defend their own God, whom they allow to be mocked and disrespected in the culture. In another, in another video, he says, Muslims are the only people who defend their religion. They defend their beliefs, and they refuse to be mocked. People don't openly stand up and disrespect Islam because they're afraid, unquote. So in his mind, Islam is the true religion simply because it will likely be the last one standing. It's irrelevant to him that the reason people are afraid to mock Islam is not because it is true or worthy of respect, but because its fundamentalist adherents have been known to respond to disrespect with murder and mayhem. So what attracts Tate to Islam is not principles, truth, or spirituality, but the fact that it projects a fearsome, hyper-masculine strength. In fact, as he stated passionately in another video, which is now deleted, but you can find it online preserved by the uh, watchdogs at Memory, M-E-M-R-I, Tate admits that the Muslims he truly respects are the terrorist savages of Islamic State. Here's a quote from him, quote, ISIS are the real Muslims because ISIS do exactly what the book, meaning the Quran, says. Kill everyone who's not a Muslim and chop people's heads off and set them on fire and be effing raging lunatics. But all the other Muslims go, oh, they're not real Muslims because I read the book and ignore those parts. Well, then you're not effing Muslim because you're ignoring the effing book, unquote. And for what it's worth, Tate did not censor those F words like I did. 
Needless to say, anyone who holds up ISIS as an example of admirable religious conviction needs a morality check. Regardless, Tate believes Islam is the future of the West. This is why I'm Muslim, he wrote on social media after he converted. He said, any Christian who believes in good and understands the true battle against evil must convert, unquote. It's worth noting that the self-proclaimed misogynist Tate seems drawn to Islam also because, at least in its most fundamentalist incarnations around the world, it enforces a strict and even brutal sexism against women. In one video you can find online, Tate openly expresses his desire to find, quote, an Islamic-ass wife, unquote, alongside whom he would keep a pile of rocks in case she gets fresh, he said. What he's referring to there is the Sharia practice of stoning women to death. I don't think that's exactly what Tate's conservative fans have in mind when they think that he advocates for traditional male-female relationships. But his point that other believers under attack do not sufficiently defend their faith is a sobering and valid point. Where are the Christian communities, for example, rising up to stamp out the infiltration of unbiblical gender ideologues who literally stand at the pulpit in some churches and proclaim that God is gay or transgender. Tate's high-profile rejection of Christianity for Islam signals to his fans that the latter, Islam, is manly and strong and true, while the former, Christianity, is effeminate, diluted by modernism and by a tolerance of secular trends, and ultimately false. Here is an example of how this perception plays out in the real world. Several years ago, there was a report from Egypt which noted that Muslim men there were stickering their cars with shark symbols in this kind of aggressive response to the Christian fish sticker that was pasted on the cars of some members of the Coptic Christian minority there. When asked about it, one young Muslim laughed and said, quote, The Christians had the fish, so we responded with the shark. If they want to portray themselves as weak fishes, okay. We are the strongest, unquote. It's that kind of supremacist perception that emboldens the persecution and genocide of Christians and Jews in the Middle East that leads to attacks on churches throughout Europe and America and calls for global war against Jews and synagogues that leads to priests being beheaded at church altars in Europe and to surging anti-Semitism in the West. How much are we supposed to tolerate the Christian command to turn the other cheek shouldn't be misconstrued to mean that we surrender meekly to slaughter and extermination at the hands of our enemies. And yet too few Christians and Jews even bother to take to the streets in protest, much less fight back. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world, even as the true believers in Christianity and Judaism are in decline. This is largely to do with the higher Muslim birth rate, but how much of Christianity's decline, for example, is because in its current anemic state, it has little with which to attract young men who are looking for a faith that will empower them to fulfill their nature and their purpose, especially when the influential Andrew Tate offers such a seductive alternative. Now, I'm not calling for persecuted people of faith to return revenge for violence. I am calling, however, for believers, especially men, whose natural duty is to protect and defend to put on the full armor of God, as it says in the book of Ephesians, and take a righteous stance for their God against evil, 
whether flesh and blood or spiritual. That stance can take many forms, all of which require a deepened commitment to one's faith and a spirit of sacrifice and service. There's no room for sacrifice and service in Andrew Tate's self-aggrandizing vision of manhood. Men have to find the courage to defend and preserve the true, the good, and the beautiful in a culture that is waging open war against those values that made the West great. The civilization once known as Christendom cannot be rescued without a reinvigoration and manly defense of the faith that nurtured it. An emasculated culture is a doomed culture, a civilization whose men feel that it has no use for them, where their natural drives of competitiveness, adventurousness, and even aggression, all of which are condemned today as toxic, are not valued, encouraged, and properly channeled, will stagnate and die. A civilization whose men will not or cannot defend its women and children, its borders, and its faith and values is a civilization ripe for conquest, whether that comes from without or within. I think the future of Western civilization will depend on whatever vision of masculinity prevails. It will depend on whatever faith, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, paganism, social justice fanaticism, or any other faith, gives today's morally adrift young men a code that speaks to their scorned nature and sets them on the path to becoming men of purpose and integrity and righteous strength. If we as a society make the right choice, everything else will begin to fall into place. The healing of our broken families, our divided communities, our decadent culture, our waning civilization. And then there will be what the poet T.S. Eliot called, quote, right order in the soul and right order in the commonwealth. Thanks for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. That really helps. And you will have my eternal gratitude. See you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.